preach to 2 Corinthians chapter 13. We're nearing the end of my series. <clears throat> and, and we should cover four verses today, 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 1 to 4. So, verse 1, the Apostle Paul wrote, This is the third time I am coming to you. <clears throat> In the mouth of two or three witnesses shall every word be established. I told you before and foretell you as if I were present the second time. And being absent now, I write to them which hitherto fore have sinned and to all other that if I come again, I will not spare. Since ye seek a proof of Christ speaking in me, which to you what is not weak, but is mighty in you. For though he was crucified through weakness, yet he liveth by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but we shall live with him by the power of God toward you. We'll ask the Lord to bless our, our time in his word. <clears throat> Father, we do thank you for the privilege of being able to open the Bible every Lord's Day and uh, to hear a message from it. We pray today, Lord, that as we uh, just share a few thoughts from this passage, uh, Lord, if there's a, a need or a challenge that we, uh, that we have, uh, a challenge that we need, I pray, Father, uh, that your Holy Spirit would take that and he would apply it to our lives. But we just want to commit our, our time in your word to your glory. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The Apostle Paul starts off in chapter 13, verse 1. This is the third time I am coming to you. Uh, Paul was soon to visit the Corinthian church. He was up in Macedonia. He'd come over from Ephesus and now he was in Macedonia in northern, uh, in northern Greece. It wasn't too far for him to move down uh, to uh, Achaia, which is or Achaia, where the, the Corinthian church was and so he was, he was soon to visit uh, the Corinthian church, but he had some serious concerns about the spiritual condition of the church. And he expressed those concerns as a fear. And that's my first point today, Paul's fear. It was my last point in my last message, but it's my first point. So let's go back to 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verses 20 and 21, and let's see what Paul was fearing about his visit to Corinth. Verse 20, For I fear lest when I am come, I shall not find you such as I would, and that I shall be found unto you such as ye would not, lest there be debates, envyings, wraths, strifes, backbitings, whisperings, swellings, tumults. And lest when I come again, my God will humble me among you, and that I shall bewail many which have sinned already and have not repented of the uncleanness and fornication and lasciviousness which they have committed. It's hard to imagine that this was written to a church. The word for one of the titles for, 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 church, for church people is their, their saints. And that, the word saint simply means holy one. And so Paul is speaking to the saints supposedly holy ones, of the church in Corinth. But there were, there were real spiritual problems in the church. And Paul feared that when he came to visit 
He would be humbled among them. He would have that sense of shame uh, because of their sinning. He was afraid that he would bewail them. That word bewail is also translated to mourn. And so he, he would come into the church and find out what's going on and it'd be like he'd be mourning the, the, the dead. He would mourn. Would he have to mourn those who had sinned? Um, would he have to mourn those who hadn't repented of the sins that he'd written to them about? And so he expressed this fear that he would be humbled among them and that he would have to bewail them. That was his fear when he was soon to visit their church. But you might say this is a pretty, pretty sort of graphic thing that he writes here. And he writes about all of these things, debates, envies, wrath, uh, fornications and, and lasciviousness. You might read that and think, well, was this just Paul? Uh, just, just sour grapes from Paul. Because some people in the Corinthian church had been criticising him. Uh, was Paul just paying them back for the way they had treated him, for the things that they'd said about him? Is that why he wrote this uh, to them so graphically? Was it just sour grapes? Was it just payback? Well, we know that that wasn't the case, of course. That wasn't the case. And I'll show you the reason he did say that. But it got me to thinking that we need to be careful that we don't fall into the kind of behaviour that we might describe as paying back people for things that we think they've done against us. You might, uh, you might be familiar with the expression tit for tat. Uh, and the Cambridge Dictionary defines this as actions done intentionally to punish other people because they've done something unpleasant to you. For example, I noticed she didn't send me a card. I think it was tit for tat because I forgot her birthday last year. Tit for tat. They've done something bad to me. I'm going to get them back with doing something back. I mean, it was interesting recently that even the Mayor of London and the President of the United States were indulging in tit for tat via Twitter and other media. The Mayor of London wrote in the Observer, which is, a, I suppose, a London paper, that the president is just one of the most egregious examples of a growing global threat. Get the feeling he doesn't like him. So the mayor of London wrote that about the president of the United States. The president then responded sometime later. He tweeted, the mayor reminds me very much of our very dumb and incompetent mayor of New York City. who has also done a terrible job and only half his height. <laughs> So this was a bit of spiteful tit-for-tat indulged in by two of the leaders of the free world. It's a worry, isn't it? Well, is tit-for-tat something that God wants us to do? Well, let me tell you what Jesus said. Jesus told us that this tit-for-tat behaviour isn't how he wants us to live. In Matthew 5.39, Jesus said, But I say unto you that you resist not evil, but whosoever shall smite thee on the right cheek, turn to him the other cheek. Jesus wants us to turn the other cheek when we are attacked or we are hurt. Paul told the Romans in Romans 12, 17, recompense to no man evil for evil. Recompense to no man. Respond to no man evil with evil. Now I know how the flesh can rise up 
when you feel that you've been un unfairly treated or you've been unfairly tweeted. <laughs> Did you, uh, you know how the flesh can rise up and you want to pay them back for what they've said or done. We want to pay back the evil that we think we have received, but this is not God's way. And it's not the way of the cross. In fact, Jesus told us to do the opposite, didn't he? Jesus told us to do the opposite to what the flesh desires. In Matthew 5, 44, Jesus told us, I say unto you, love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. Do the opposite. So this guy's cursing you. This guy's your enemy. This guy's doing evil. Do the opposite back. Don't return evil for evil but return evil with good. That's what Jesus told us that he wants us to do. So for the Christian, there, there's to be no tit for tat. There's to be no retaliation. And that's what we find from Paul in his response to the Corinthians. The Corinthians had, oh, they had been speaking very badly of him and treating him very badly, but he wasn't going to enter into this tit for tat. It wasn't, in Paul's case, it, it wasn't tit-for-tat or sour grapes that made him share his concern that we just read about here, his concern about the Corinthians. What had probably prompted what he wrote here was that, that Titus had just returned from Corinth after he delivered Paul's first epistle. So Paul wrote that first epistle, he sent it off with Titus, and Titus had just come back after having delivered that epistle. And Paul had written that epistle only three months before this epistle. So things that were happening in Corinth were probably still fairly current in Corinth, in the church, because this is only three months later that he writes this second epistle. And when Titus returned, you'd imagine that he would have told Paul how the church was doing. How's the church doing? And this must have been what prompted Paul Paul's concern, this must have been what prompted his fear, this fear that he expressed here. It's a really basic on the, the report that Titus must have given him. Now, if you remember, there were certain things that Paul addressed in his first epistle. And, and uh, Paul, he mentions here uh, in verse 21 about the fornication and the lasciviousness. <clears throat> there was a matter, if you remember, of uncleanness or fornication which Paul wrote to them about in 1 Corinthians 5. A man had taken his, his father's wife and Paul had told him that that was wrong and he told them what they needed to do. And, and thankfully, when you get to 2 Corinthians, his second epistle, when he's writing back to them, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, Titus informed, we learn that Titus informed Paul that the, the Corinthians had responded well to his first letter in that matter and that they had dealt with the man in question, they put him out of the church. So that was good. That was good. Uh, he heard about that. He wrote to them about that and they'd responded the right way. But what about the matter of the envying and strife? And if you go to 1 Corinthians 3, it uses the word envying and strife that, that, was, that was happening in the church. And what about the envying and strife that had been causing the divisions in the church? The church was divided. Some were for Paul, some for Apollos, some for, uh, for Peter. There was division and there was envying and strife associated with that. What about that? Had that been dealt with? Had they 
repented of that. What about those who were eating at the dining rooms of the pagan temple? Right in the middle of Corinth, there's this temple of Apollo and there are all these dining rooms around it and certain were going along and eating the food that had been offered to idols. Had that changed? Had the people repented of that? He addressed that in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And what about their disgraceful behaviour at the Lord's table? Some were being discounted. There were sort of the haves and the have-nots as they came to the Lord's table. Had that disgraceful behaviour also been dealt with? You see, these were the sins that Paul had written to them about in his first epistle, just in fact some of them. There were more than that. And perhaps after his visit to Corinth, Titus had informed Paul that some of these things were still happening. This wasn't sour grapes. Paul had genuine concern about some in the, in the church. It wasn't sour grapes, but the aching heart of their spiritual dad. He feared for them. Would he be, would he be humbled by this sin? Would, be, would he have to bewail some in the church? So having shared his fear, Paul told the church here now in chapter 13 that when he came, this time he would come and deal with them as an apostle should. But he wanted to inform them when he did come that he would be fair and that he would be firm. And that's what he went on to say in our chapter 13. First Paul said that he would be fair. When he came, this is my fear, but I'm coming, but when I come I'm going to deal with this, but I'm going to be fair. That's really what he's referring to in verse 1. This is the third time I'm coming to you. In the mouth of two or three witnesses shall every word be established. We have a policy among our many, many school policies and procedures that must be filling up Mr. Truesdale's head and you can't sleep at night thinking about them. One of our policies is a policy called procedural fairness. And it states that when an accusation is made, it might be an accusation of a student against a student or an accusation of a student or parent against a teacher, the policy states that if an accusation has been made, in our investigations, there must always be procedural fairness. Each party to the complaint must have the opportunity to be fairly treated. Uh, and then they have to be fairly treated by the procedures that we put into action. Now, this is, this is, uh, this is reasonable. It's just. It's fair. And it prevents a travesty of justice occurring and a salacious accusation getting traction. If everybody has fairness and we procedurally were able to get everybody's side of the story and figure out exactly what happened, this is what we need to do so that there is no travesty or justice or salacious accusations getting traction. So we have that as a part of our policy in the government of Australia. Well, New South Wales requires us to have this in our policies for our school. But you know, this concern for fairness in how we treat people and how we treat accusations isn't just something that our modern governments have thought up. And that's really what Paul is talking about. He, he comes, he says, I have this concern about you. He said, the third time I am coming to you. And then he states this, this policy, if you like, of fairness. In the mouth of two or three witnesses shall every word be established. Now, all he's doing here is quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 19, and verse 15, I'll read it to you. 
One witness shall not rise up against a man for any iniquity or for any sin, in any sin that he sinneth. At the mouth of two witnesses or at the mouth of three witnesses shall the matter be established. One person can't come up and accuse another person of something without there being at least two or three witnesses to that event. Now Jesus also quali- uh, 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 quoted this same policy, if we want to call it a policy. There was a, a, a mosaic policy uh, And also, Jesus quoted that same policy in Matthew chapter 18. Let me read it, 15 and 16. Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. If he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. That's the first thing we have to do. Go, don't talk about it. Don't go above and just go and say, hey, did you know that you did this to me? Do you know that that you hurt me by what you said? Or go and check something out. We go to them first. But then Jesus said, but if he will not hear thee, take then with thee one or two more, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word shall be established. So Jesus reasserted the Mosaic policy of fairness. Paul was about to visit the Corinthian church and he knew that he would have to deal with problems and he had to deal with problem people. And I don't know any leader that enjoys that. Uh, I've spoken to many pastors, people in authority and ministry. Nobody likes confrontation. Any person I know that likes confrontation, his name is Khalil. Uh, He seems to thrive on it. But the rest of us, we don't like it. We run from it. I don't think he's here, so I won't get bashed up. But Paul knew that he was going to the church and he'd have to deal with problems and problem people. And there were among those problem people, those of course, the false teachers who had been criticising his person. They had personal accusations against him and they'd been accusing his ministry. They'd been criticising his ministry. And so amongst those that he would have to deal with were these false teachers who had been criticising him. And we know from what we've already read that he was pretty cranky with this uh, particular uh, group. In chapter 11, he calls them false apostles, deceitful workers and ministers of Satan. (laughs) So you get the idea that he's definitely cranky with those guys. But when he came, there would be no personal reprisals from him. And he wouldn't accept any accusation unless there were two or three witnesses. This was what Moses and this is what Jesus prescribed and he wasn't going to change the policy. He wanted it to be fair. And brethren, you know, we can all fall into the error of judging people before the facts. Judging people before knowing the facts and without giving them a fair hearing. Someone will come and tell you something about somebody and he'll say, well, did you ask them about it? Oh, no, it's just what I've heard. Hmm, no fairness in that, you see. You know, we can all fall prey to the evil of gossiping and gossiping is never fair. Gossiping is never fair. You don't gossip to the person you're gossiping about. (laughs) You definitely don't tell them about it. The dictionary defines gossiping as this, casual or unconstrained conversation or reports about other people, typically involving details which are not 
confirmed as true. They are not confirmed as true. Gossiping doesn't allow for fairness, and you know, gossiping can cause great hurt. So it's no wonder we read this in Proverbs 18. Proverbs 18, verse 8. The words of a talebearer, the gossip, are wounds, are as wounds. The words of a gossip are as wounds. They're wounds. And they, they go down into the innermost parts of the belly. It's a wound to gossip about somebody. Proverbs 26, 20 says this, Where no wood is, <laughs> there the fire goeth out. So where there is no talebearer, the strife ceaseth. God hates gossiping. He hates it in my life. It's easy to do. We all like to think we know something about somebody and we just want to tell someone about it, but we've got to be, be thinking, am I being fair? Is this what I'm going to report being established by two or three witnesses? Have we gone to the person first, as Jesus told us to do? That's what we need to be asking before we share that salacious bit of information. You see, even though Paul's heart was broken, and it was, by the treatment from the Corinthians, and even though they, they were enemies of the cross in the church, which he had started, Paul would deal with every person with fairness. He would be fair. And that's what verse 1 is about. This, the third time I am coming to you, in the mouth of two or three witnesses shall every word be established. But he would be fair, but he wanted them to also know that he would be firm. And so having shared his fear and having shared his fairness, he went on to share that he would be firm. And so we see Paul's firmness in verse 2. Let me read that. I told you before, and Paul tell you as if I were present the second time, and being absent now I write to them which heretofore have sinned, and to all other that if I come, and there are the words that should have sent shivers between down their backs. I will not spare. When I read that, you think of spare the rod, spoil the child. Paul is using the language of parenting to warn these people. He's like a parent warning a child. He said, when I come, I will not spare those who have sinned and I will not spare those who have still not repented. We need to understand at the beginning of this epistle, he told them that he was holding off his visit. He told them that he was going to go from Ephesus to Corinth first and then head up to Macedonia, but he had to explain why he changed his plans. He decided before going, instead of going straight over to Corinth, he would, he would go up to Macedonia first and come to Corinth later. And he tells us the reason that he was going to change his plans. Have a look back in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 23. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 23. Moreover, verse 23, I call God for a record upon my soul that to spare you I came not as yet unto Corinth. You see, he did spare. He spared not going to Corinth first, but rather going up to Macedonia and writing this second epistle and sending that off with Titus. He gave them time to, uh, to 
if you like, but once again repent from their sins. After the return of Titus, Paul knew that things weren't still good in Corinth. So he held off his visit and he wrote and then he would send this letter, 2 Corinthians, before he actually came, before he had his visit. And this second epistle would be sent back with Titus and so Titus would have to go, he just came back from Corinth and was, after delivering the first epistle and so he's going to go back to Corinth with this second epistle. Paul said he would, he would spare them to give them time to repent. But when he, when he finally did come, he tells us now in chapter 13 that when he did finally come that he would not spare them any longer. He gave them time, he spared them to repent. He wrote this whole epistle and it's full of the heart of Paul and he just pours out his heart for these people, warns them about the false teachers. So he gave them time to read that and to repent before he came. He spared them that first visit. But if he came, and when he came the next time, he tells them now, I will not spare. And I learned from that that Paul was a gracious and loving spiritual parent to a rebellious, <laughs> difficult church. He could have gone that first time and he could have just dealt with it, but he said, no, I'll just write this second epistle. I'll share my heart and then I'll give you a chance to repent. But now when I do come, I won't spare any longer. And I, th I thought from this that here is one of the traits of good parenting. One of the traits of good parenting is to know when to spare and when not to spare. <laughs> Sometimes we need to spare the rod. Other times we, we shouldn't spare the rod. And that's what good parenting is about. Well, for Paul, the time not to spare had come. And so when he came, he wouldn't spare. And what that meant was, I don't really know. He doesn't tell us. Perhaps when he came, he tells us over here, we'll read it in a moment, when he came, you saw it, a proof of me that I am an apostle, so when I come, I'm going to, I'm going to act like an apostle and I'm going to not spare those who have sinned. Now, I'm not sure that would, what that was. Perhaps he would put some people out of an office in the church, some deacons who would be sacked, uh, some elders who would be sacked, I don't know. We, maybe he would put some people out of the church in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, the person who, that man who committed that terrible sin, uh, he told the church, he told the church they wanted to put him out of the church. Perhaps he would do that. Perhaps he would confront these false apostles and just look them in the eye. He's, he was a little short fellow. <laughs> he was going to look them in the eye and he'd tell them that they're the ministers of Satan. Perhaps that's what he would do. We don't really know. But I can imagine what he will do because, you see, he has spared them. He's written this epistle. He's shared his heart. He's give, graciously given them another chance to repent. But now it was time not to spare. And so he cynically, I think he cynically wrote what this in verses 3 and 4. Since you seek a proof of Christ speaking in me, which to you is not weak, but he's mighty in you, for though he was crucified, Christ was crucified through weakness, Yet he liveth by the power of God, for we also are weak in him, but we shall live with him by the power of God towards you. When you read church history, you read uh, a familiar criticism by the pagans of that first era, 
of the old, uh, early church era. And the pagans would uh, say to the Christians, how could you worship Jesus? How could he be a worthy God uh, when you could nail him to a cross and that he could be killed? <laughs> the pagan idea of a God was of a, of a powerful God who, who couldn't be captured and he couldn't be killed. How could you worship a God that you could nail to a, a tree? It can't be very powerful. That was one of the criticisms that was made on the early church by the pagans. Now, of course, there were two things wrong with their argument. The first thing is that their gods, the many gods they had, none of them were real. <laughs> they were all fakes. So it wasn't like Jesus was a lesser god than these other guys. These guys, they weren't real. Jesus was real. He was there. But the second uh, for, for fault in their argument was that, yes, he was crucified and he, he did die, but they forgot to say and acknowledge that he rose from the dead. And who has ever done that? He was the, uh, gave, gave us every reason to believe that he was God's son and who he said he, he was. And so he, Paul, so maybe, you know, flirts with this idea for though he was crucified through weakness, it's looked like Jesus wasn't strong. He's, he's been crucified, nailed to a cross and being killed by his enemies. But we know that it was through his weakness he was able to rise again. And through that, the power of God was revealed. And Paul would, when he came to Corinth, he was going to follow the example of Christ of power in weakness. He will be tough and he will be tender. He'll be tough on the wrongdoers and he'll be tender on the rest. You know, people might have looked at Paul's, on Paul's physical appearance and, and thought that he was a weakling. Oh, that, that's the apostle. He's a pushover, that guy. When there were any problems with him, <laughs> uh, they, they might have looked on him and certainly the, some of the criticisms that the, the, the false apostles had given was that Paul was this, you know, not, he wasn't impressive in, his, in, in, in his, what he looked like and he wasn't impressive in his speech. But if they thought that he was a pushover, they would have to think again because you see in the power of God and in the power of God's word, Paul was anything but by the power of God, he tells them, I will minister to you. They wanted him to show proof of his apostleship. Well, there's no doubt when he did come, he would show them that he was God's man. There'll be absolutely no doubt about it. And you know, whoever we are, whoever we are who serve the Lord, we should never depend on the outer man or on the outer woman. Our only true effective power comes from the Christ within. 2 Corinthians 4, 7, Paul had already told them, but we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. You know, our only effective spiritual power comes from the treasure within and that treasure is Jesus. If we can be broken and allow the life of Christ to shine forth, that is the only way that we can effectively minister for him and that's the way that Paul would minister to them. For we also are weak, in him, but ye shall, we shall live by him, with him by the power of God toward you. So, we've seen Paul's here, we've seen his fairness, and we've seen his firmness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, the Apostle Paul, we thank you for sharing things that, Lord, are so personal to him, 
and yet practical as far as Christian ministry. You think of that Lord, he was able to endure the criticisms because he didn't see himself as personally being anything. He only saw any greatness in what you are in him. He only saw the power of Christ in him that could do the ministry you'd called him to. I pray, Father, that you would help us, Lord, uh, to, um, Lord, to give nothing to fear to our pastors and to our Lord Jesus Christ, nothing to fear in our lives that would embarrass our Saviour or, um, Lord, bring bad testimony to our church. I pray none of the things that Paul lists here would be true of us, Lord. And I pray, Father, in all of our dealings with other people, Help us not to be gossips, Lord. Help us not to be people who tell a tale without finding out the truth. I pray that we would always think that we need to be fair in what we do and say towards others. And I pray, Father, that we who are parents, we who are in ministry, help us to know when it is time to be firm and how to be firm, when to spare and when not to spare. We thank you, Lord, uh, for this example in Jesus' name. Amen.